Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm Presents Book Burners, Episode 12. Cardinal Verano frowns. I want to thank you, he says, for exposing the presence of a working magician to the society. We are in your debt for that. Sir, Sal says. You may address me as Cardinal, Verano says. She keeps herself from rolling her eyes. You can kiss ass when you need to, Sal, she reminds herself. This is one of those times. Cardinal, she says. May I ask what happened to Jacob? What do you mean, he says. You know what happened to him. No, I mean what we did with him. Miss Brooks, he says. He and his family are safe and sound where they belong. Where they belong. She doesn't like the sound of that at all. She looks over at Balloon and Stretch, those two weirdos she'd run into with Manchu when she'd first gone to visit Perry, back when she first got here. They are sitting with their Monsignor and Hilary Sansoni, another of the members of Team Two. Balloon and Stretch are both looking back at Sal as if they've been watching her the whole time. They each give her a huge grin. Please proceed, the Cardinal said. Sal left something out of her testimony, the part where Jacob defended what he did. You understand why I did it, don't you? He'd said. I just love this place so much, and I don't want to leave it. None of us do. Do you understand? Sal had looked at everyone in the brick house, and they all nodded. She believed them. The tornado that destroyed half of Tanner City couldn't make them go. The creatures that were destroying what was left couldn't make them leave either. They were the survivors, the people hanging on. The state could unincorporate the town around them, turn off the power, stop delivering the mail, stop fixing the roads, and they'd probably still be out there. And when anyone asked them where they were from, where they lived, they'd still say the same thing. Tanner City, full stop. So what did Team Two do? Sal, Asante said, it is very good to hear your voice. Her own voice sounded strained, anxious. Is everyone else okay? Sal said. 
We heard from Liam. Uh, Liam is all right. Sal felt a weight leave her heart. She hadn't realized she'd been feeling it until it was gone. What about Grace and Manchu? No word, Asante said. And the weight returned. Sal put it away, the way her job, her life, had trained her to do. What's going on? Team One is on its way, Asante said. They're probably almost to you now, no more than a few hours off. Asante, Sal said. I think I may have found a way to fix this without Team One. The tornado eaters, the what? Asante said. That's what they call the monsters around here. Who? The people in town. There are people in town, Asante said. And they have a name for the monsters? Sal told Asante everything. Asante, is there any way of calling off Team One? Sal said when she was finished with the story. There was a long pause on the other end. Team One, Asante said, is uh, more like the military than the police. Once the gears are in motion, they turn. Team Two is following them in. From what Liam described to us, and now from what you're telling us about the people in town, it sounds like they'll be necessary. Balloon and stretch, Sal thought. The cold looks they'd given her. She pictured Balloon and Stretch talking to Sharon and Jacob, doing more than talking, and shuddered. She suddenly regretted having told Asante anything. It was what she was supposed to do, but she was wondering if she should have. Then Asante said, call Liam. You should be together when Team Run arrives, so at least you're easier to account for. And Liam will be thrilled to know that you're alive. I'll do it, Sal said. Sal, Asante said, please be careful. I'll report back when Liam and I have joined up. She called Liam. He was as relieved as Asante said he would be, as Sal expected him to be. They figured out they were less than a mile apart. Within a half hour, she was approaching the intersection of two local roads, not much more than two dirt tracks crossing at the corners of two farms. In the light gathering before dawn, she could see that Liam was already there, a shadow standing in the dust. When he saw Sal, he ran to her and gave her a crushing hug, big enough to lift her feet off the ground. You have no idea how good it is to see you, he said. They told each other what they'd done to get there. There wasn't much more to say after that, so they waited for team one. They were just glad to be there. In the quiet of the fields at dawn, Sal and Liam could hear team one rolling down the country road for a good minute before they actually got there. They were in a small line of Humvees that pulled to the side of the road in unison, the first one stopping less than a foot from Liam's shin. Christophe Bouchard, Team One's leader, got out of the passenger side of the head vehicle. Doyle, he said, giving him a smile. So, here we are. Yes, Liam said. I'm glad to see you. He pointed toward Tanner City. The monsters are invisible right now. They won't be when they attack. That's our experience so far. We've seen that sort of thing before. Bouchard said. How many of them are there? At least two, Liam said. Three, Sal said. Bouchard looked at her. You're sure? Yes, I talked to the person who let them out. Bouchard's eyebrows rose. He didn't mean it, Sal said. At least not this. Bouchard nodded. So many of them always seem to have the best intentions. Good thing managing the general populace is in my department. He cleared his throat. How big are they? The tallest one we saw has legs that are possibly a quarter mile high, Liam said. That big, Bouchard said. Possibly, maybe bigger. And that's not the biggest one, Sal said. Not according to the person who let them out. Liam and Bouchard both looked at her. The biggest one is underground, she said. We haven't seen it yet. 
Bouchard pursed his lips. Okay, then, he said. Tell me what else you know about these things. Sal and Liam did. Sal protected Sharon and Jacob whenever she had a chance. Then Bouchard paced over to the lead vehicle and made a gesture. In less than a minute, the other members of Team One had gotten out and were standing in tight formation. Gentlemen, Bouchard began. He walked them through the details of what Liam and Sal had related and waited for a response. There was none. We will need everything we have, he finished, conventional and unconventional. Suit up. Out came an assortment of metal pieces that looked like something between medieval armor and an industrial exoskeleton. A crate of oddly shaped weapons, two pairs of wings, one made of sharp metal feathers, the other almost transparent, like the wings of a giant dragonfly. A pair of claws. Team One suited up. The two of them took the wings and strapped them to their backs, and the wings softened and fluttered. Another soldier pulled the claws over his own hands, and they seemed to bond to his arms. They donned their armor as if they'd each only found pieces of a full suit. One of them had an arm sheathed in a coppery metal. With that arm, he hoisted a machine gun Sal was sure should be mounted on the front of a helicopter. Another slid into a set of trousers and, testing them, jumped over the van in a single leap and landed crouching on his feet. A third soldier draped a cloak over his shoulders, closed his eyes, disappeared, and reappeared ten feet down the road. What was all this stuff, Sal thought. And what about the swords, axes, and vials that hung from Team One's belts? How much magic was involved here? All right, Bouchard said. Let's go in noisy so we can see what we're up against. He turned to Sal and Liam. Can you guys drive these? He motioned to the Humvees. Sal and Liam nodded. You round up the civilians you mentioned and get them out of town, okay? Bouchard said. All right, Sal said. She turned to Liam. Follow me. Sal took the lead vehicle. Team One stood in the road in front of her, again in tight formation. Bouchard's arm was raised. He dropped it like the blade of a guillotine. Team One took off. One soldier grabbed the hand of the one with the cloak and both vanished. One jumped onto the back of the man with the trousers and they sprinted off down the road, almost flying. The ones with wings began flapping them, rising to hover in the air. They grabbed the final two earthbound soldiers under their arms and flew toward Tanner City. Bouchard himself took off at a run, too fast for humans to go without some kind of help. Sal hit the gas and careened into town behind them. She looked in her rearview mirror. Liam was right behind her, teeth gritted. Just after Sal hit the edge of town, she took a sharp left onto a side street, backtracking. She passed the sign on the house where the woman did embroidery. The basketball hoop, the bikes in the yard. The vinyl siding gave way to wood and brick. She was almost back in the center of the town. For a split second, she didn't recognize the brick house where Ray, Sharon, Jacob, and the others were. It looked different during the day from the back. Then she saw the tree, the tree that had bent sideways as though in a storm, as she and Ray had walked through the parking lot. She pulled into the lot without losing speed and shrieked to a halt. She looked up, expecting to see the monsters appear in a wink right out of the clear blue sky. But the monsters were already there. They had seen Team One. The first one was just a block away, towering over the roofs, its triangular head pointed toward the sky. The other one was still there, too, its legs arcing down from the clouds, its body way above. Was it only a quarter mile? Was it more? It was impossible to say. And where was the biggest one? As Sal watched, the soldier from Team One with the metal wings carrying another soldier dive straight toward the monster. The creature's mouth opened into a roar. The wings tucked, and the two team members gained speed. 
The soldier being carried pulled out a blade that grew in his hand to the size of a lance. More blades sprang from his arms, his legs, until he was covered in razors. He put his bladed arms out in front of him. Before the monster even had a chance to stop roaring, the coupled soldiers started spinning like arrows, flew straight into the monster's mouth, and burst out the back of its head in a blossom of black blood and torn up flesh. The blades on the suits retracted, and out came the wings, and the two team members sped away in the air, in time to clear a fireball that started in the creature's neck right below its head, and ballooned outward from there. The tornado eater started to let out a horrific cry that was choked off at once as the head separated from the rest of the body and tilted downward to fall into the street. The two team members paused in midair and looked like they were exchanging jokes with each other. One of them, Sal thought, must have dropped a bomb down the tornado eater's throat as they were passing through like they'd done this drill a hundred times. She ran to the door of the brick house and smacked on it with her palm until someone opened it. It was Ray. Get everyone out, Sal said. We're getting you out of town. It's not safe to be here right now. We just saw, Ray said, through the window. Then you know, Sal said. Come on. All 19 of them made a break for the Humvees in the lot. Don't look up, Sal told them. They all did. They could see tracer bullets rising from the street toward the legs of the tornado eater suspended in the sky. The shots must have been coming from the street. Then the firing stopped, and as they watched, five soldiers came into view, one climbing each leg until they reached the spot where, against nature, the legs started getting thinner. The tornado eater started thrashing, trying to kick them off, but they held on tight. Sal realized they'd each spiked something, a knife, a spear, into the flesh and were hanging on to that. They weren't coming off. Get in, get in, Sal yelled. Everyone did, and they drove a few blocks away until Sal was sure they were safe. She turned the Humvee around so she could see. The two team members who could fly shot up toward the body until they were far enough away that no one on the ground could see them. Then some signal must have been given. High above them, the body of the tornado eater erupted in flame. At the same time, the team members on each leg drew weapons, swords, axes, some circular-bladed weapon that Sal didn't recognize that grew to seemingly four times the soldier's height. They flashed in the sun like giant scissors. That they could wield them at all seemed like an impossibility, but there it was. They brandished them in near synchronicity, then together they cut through all the legs at once and scrambled back down. The bodies started to fall from the sky. The air darkened, reddened. It was a mist of blood. Sal turned on the windshield wipers and waited until it cleared. Outside, it was quiet. Are we safe? Sal asked. She looked back at the people in the van. No, said a voice. Not at all. Jacob. Tell me, Sal said. The last one, Jacob said. We'll eat the town before it lets you have it. How do you stop it? Sal asked. You don't. Sal turned the Humvee around and drove frantically to the edge of town. She screamed at everyone to get out, turned back around, and headed straight into town again, back to the intersection where they'd first pulled into Tanner City. The street was filled with hunks of flesh, car-sized pieces that looked like fatty lobster. The pavement was slick with something clear and viscous. And there was all of Team One in tight formation, waiting for that third tornado eater to show up. Sal, Bouchard called. Please tell me you have endangered your life because you have intel. Yes, Sal said. It'll attack when it thinks you've won. Look around, Bouchard said. I think we just did. He smiled, not cocky, just ready. But he wasn't. A long, thin, curved tooth, a row of them, erupted from under the asphalt. 
one of them right between Bouchard's feet. It speared upward and through him, slid out of his back in between his shoulder blades. He slid down it until something inside him caught on it. Then he was borne upward like a puppet and died without another word. The rest of Team One had a chance to jump back and draw their weapons. They watched the row of teeth rise in front of them and turning around saw another set rising through the street at the next corner. The mouth was as big as the block and was about to swallow it, which is when Sal saw what Team One could really do. They ran to the middle of the block into the middle of the mouth. Three of them chanted something and the right hands of their suits grew. They curled them into fists until they looked like wrecking balls. They swung them down on the pavement again and again, faster and faster, until the hands were blurs and the pavement yielded to dirt. Then the hands opened and started digging with the same blurry speed. They were drilling through the earth down to the underground creature's throat. The teeth were still rising, and the broken earth rolled off them and gave way to dark gums, the edge of a long, dark, hairy lip caked with dust and rocks. Sal swore she could see all the buildings on the block lifting and shuddering their foundations cracking. Windows shattered in their frames as the wood around them shifted and closed in. Then Team One hit bottom and broke through, made a hole to the last tornado eater's open throat. They didn't even have to talk about it. As Sal watched in awe, the smallest of them collected a handful of vials of something from the others, gave a quick salute, and jumped in. The rest of them ran, leapt over the teeth, leapt past Bouchard's impaled corpse, one of them picked up Sal like she was nothing and kept running. They didn't so much hear the explosion as feel it, a rumbling jolt through the ground. It knocked all of them down. The man from Team One who had picked Sal up fell on top of her to shield her, but there was no need. There was a smell like burning, rotten seafood. They looked back. The windows had stopped breaking, the teeth had stopped rising. They just stood in a row across the street like a fence. Bouchard was still there, hanging like a doll. The other soldier, whose name Sal didn't even know, lay buried below the street. Two men down, one of them said. Three of the soldiers slid Bouchard off the tooth and lay him in the street. They all saluted where they stood. No one shed a tear. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. The National Guard found Manchu and Grace in the wreckage of the buildings in the middle of town. Manchu had a broken arm and a broken leg. Grace had two broken legs. They'd both been trapped in the debris like earthquake survivors. They'd lost some blood. They were dehydrated and starving. Neither of them was entirely sure how they had gotten there. They both remembered ear-splitting noise, a rushing dust cloud under the bright sun. They both must have lost consciousness for a while and then found themselves pinned under parts of the ceiling that used to be above them. Paramedics got them into an ambulance and to the county hospital before Sal or Liam had a chance to tell them how glad they were to see them alive. That's a miracle, Liam said. Team Two's Hilary Sansoni had mastered the blank, friendly face of a career diplomat. There she was, standing amid the rubble in the main intersection in Tanner City, in a work jacket that she somehow managed to make fashionable. She announced herself as being from Catholic Relief Services, called in by Tanner City's parish priest, and now helping to coordinate services for the victims. Somehow she had made herself point person for the authorities coming into town now, who wanted to find out what had happened. The event of a few days ago, she said, according to eyewitnesses, had been another tornado. The weather service personnel interviewed on the news were unsure of that. There hadn't been any evidence of a storm in the area, they said, and shrugged their shoulders. But the guys in the National Guard called in to clean up the wreckage didn't need any convincing. Looks like a tornado to me, they said. It's not an airtight story, Sansoni told Sal even then when they had a quiet moment. There will always be questions. Loose ends, things that don't add up about what happened here. If conspiracy theorists ever get a hold of it, they'll blame it on UFOs or the mining companies. You know, because of what happened in Pitcher. Or they'll say it was some weapon the government was testing. Who knows what they'll come up with? Those people can be so imaginative. The only thing that matters from our perspective is that they don't come up with the truth. But the people who live here know, Sal said. They all do. It's easier than you think to get them to cooperate, Sansoni said. She gave Sal a thin smile as if to suggest that she was getting a little tired of talking about it, that maybe Sal was overstepping her bounds. Sal thought of Ray and Sharon and Jacob. Did you pay them off? Sal asked. We like to think of it as donating to reconstruction efforts. And they all agreed, 
That was when Sansoni did something. Sal couldn't even say for sure what it was. Maybe she looked away slightly or hesitated a little too long when she answered. Maybe her breathing changed. It was hard to say. Whatever it was, though, Sal picked up on it. And she was sure then that Sansoni was lying. Yes, Sansoni said. And what are Balloon and Stretch doing here? Sal wanted to ask. She had seen them talking to a few of the people in town. To Ray, to Sharon, to Jacob. She had seen them take each of the residents aside, put an arm around each of them. Confidential, protective, maybe abusive. And she had seen Sharon crying, seen Jacob looking stunned and pale, as though he'd seen something horrible or maybe something terrible had been done to him. She'd wanted to see them afterward to make sure they were all right. But when they saw her coming, they just shook their heads. Get away from us. I'm sorry for what happened to your team on this mission and to Team One. Sansoni said. What she meant was, you're done here. Me too, Sal said. For the first time, Cardinal Verano gives Sal a smile. The next words come out of his mouth with an audible sense of relief. Thank you, he says. You've been very forthcoming. He nods to the clerk next to him, who's taking notes, making the official story. He then turns to the Monsignor for Team Two. Monsignor Usher, please report, he says. The Monsignor turns to Hilary Sansoni, who has the same blank, friendly face on that she had for the Red Cross, the National Guard, the state police. It projects cool competence, a sense of command of the situation without allowing any misconceptions about how in control anyone can be. She gives Usher a small questioning look, and he gives her a nod. Proceed. First of all, she says, Team One did a remarkable job of disposing of the remains of the magical creatures. By the time secular authorities arrived, there were indications of the fires that Team One had set to dispose of the remains, but no indication of the remains themselves. Monsignor Fox gives a small, grateful smile. We were lucky, a member of Team One says. They turned out to be all soft tissue, somehow, and the fires we set consumed them quickly. And we are told by Team One's personnel, says Sansoni, that it was intel from Team 3 gathered by Miss Brooks that allowed Team 1 to be ready for the final creature's attack. They lost two of their men that day. According to Team 1's personnel, however, they could easily have lost more if they had been less aware of the details of the situation. So we are all grateful for that. There is a small round of applause for Sal. It feels perfunctory. The Cardinal doesn't clap. And the cover story, Verano says. Is it holding? As I discussed with Miss Brooks at the time, Sansoni says, giving Sal a nod, it is holding to the extent that any of our cover stories do. There is, of course, still no meteorological data to back up our claim of a second tornado, which is problematic, but a second tornado remains the most plausible explanation to secular authorities. Competing theories from government officials and scientists still fall under the realm of natural disasters. Someone is examining the possibility of an earthquake. Someone else is poring over the data looking for the chance of a windstorm of some sort. Not a tornado, but still strong enough to do a lot of damage, particularly to buildings already buffeted by the tornado they do have evidence of. A particularly dogged scientist is building a theory that Tanner City was the victim of a simultaneous earthquake and windstorm. Sounds unlikely to stand, Barano says. It makes Tanner City the most unlucky town in the world. But it does explain the destruction with the evidence they have. The theory hasn't been dismissed altogether yet. 
My guess, says Sansoni, is that the inquiries will end up being vaguely conclusive, maddening to a few people, but plausible enough to everyone else that they just move on to the next problem they can't solve. Sansoni takes a breath. Forgive me if this sounds callous, she says, but I think in the end we are very fortunate that a calamity of this scale, one that attacks the society, perhaps to the limits of what it can contain, occurred in a place with very few civilians and that almost no one outside of the town's limits has paid much attention to. If this had been Tulsa or Oklahoma City, to say nothing of any major metropolitan area on either coast of the United States, we would have had a great deal more work to do. As it is, the only people requiring any kind of real focus from us are the few who were left in Tanner City after the tornado, and some of them didn't even see anything. But some of them did, Cardinal Barano says. Sansoni looks at Sal again. Yes, she says, some did. Again, fortunately for us, it turns out that our relocation program and some substantial financial remuneration is solving the problem. Almost all of the families are moving out of Tanner City, starting new lives in other towns, other cities, in some cases, other states. To put it crudely, we have bought their silence. But to take a larger view, as the people of Tanner City rebuild their lives, their self-interest and our self-interests converge. They know that no one will believe them if they ever tell the truth, and the social costs will be extraordinarily high if they persist. They stand to lose their jobs, their new friends, everything. So in a sense, we're helping them realize what their futures entail a little faster and with less drama. Yes, they'll have to spend the rest of their lives knowing something huge about the world that almost no one else knows, but we're all used to that by now, aren't we? An appreciative chuckle ripples across the room. Sal feels a little ill. What about Jacob, she says. What about Sharon? She blurts it out almost before she knows what she's saying. Miss Brooks, the cardinal says. This is, technically speaking, an inquest to document and explain the deaths on Team One. So the people in Tanner City don't matter? That's not what I'm implying, Barano says. Only that we have procedures to follow. I want to know what happened to them, Sal says. You all just told me what a great job I did. Can you answer my question? Sal catches the smallest glare from Sansoni. Some always prove harder to convince, Sansoni said. But they came around. As the box is safe in the archive now, can we consider this matter closed? Cardinal Barano says. He sounds a little impatient. I would, the Monsignor from Team Two says. The other Monsignors give their assent. Let the record state that the inquest into the fatalities that the society suffered in Tanner City is declared closed, Barano says. It is the greatest challenge the society has faced in some time. But we have held the line. There are, perhaps, tactical changes to consider within Team 1 and Team 2. But the core of the mission held strong, and all personnel performed with the utmost ethical consideration. Sal remembers the looks on Jacob's and Sharon's faces after Balloon and Stretch were done with them. What did they do? Thank you, everyone, for your time, the Cardinal says. And thank you again to Miss Brooks for your exemplary work. The room begins to empty. Monsignor, Sal says, permission to be blunt? Monsignor and Julie's eyebrows rise. You're asking for permission now? I know I've overstepped my bounds here, Sal says, but I can't think of any other way to ask it. Ask? This whole thing was just a CYA boondoggle, Sal says. CYA? Cover your ass, as in we're here just to cover our collective asses? 
The Monsignor gives her a long sigh, as if to say you expected something else. It's been a long day, Anjuli says. He heads down the hall. But Sal can't let it go. She sees Balloon and Stretch heading down the hall in the opposite direction from everyone else. She follows them, recalls their names, though she likes her nicknames better. Desmond, DeVos, she says, hold up you two. Balloon and Stretch turn. What did you do to Jacob and Sharon? Who? Balloon asks. You know who they are. She's coming on as strong as she can without actually threatening them, but Balloon and Stretch don't seem threatened at all. I think you have some idea what we did, Stretch says. Stop fucking around, Sal says. Profanity so quickly, Balloon says. I like this one. Yes, says Stretch, very promising. You would enjoy working with us on team two. Don't be so sure, Sal says. But then you would already know what happened to those two little rednecks you seem to care so much about, Stretch says. Just so you know, they're still alive, Balloon says. But you're right that they didn't want to leave. And money was not going to be enough to get Jacob to stop practicing magic, Stretch says. So we divided and conquered, Balloon says. He took the boy, Stretch says. I took the woman. The way Stretch says the word took makes Sal's stomach flip. We didn't really have to touch them, Balloon says. We just had to talk to them, Stretch says. It was easy. I told the mother the kinds of things I was willing to do to her boy if we ever heard that they spoke a word. And I did the same to the boy about his mother, Balloon says. Now and again, we'll stop by when we happen to be in their new neighborhood, just to make sure that they still believe us, Stretch says. And it will work too, Balloon says. All we'll have to do is stand outside their house now and again and smile and wave when we catch them looking. Stretch assumes an almost philosophical tone. It is amazing, he says, the kind of violence you can inflict with words alone. After all, your body doesn't remember physical pain. It remembers the ghost of it. It remembers what it was like. When you recall a time you were physically hurt, you don't feel it all again, not like you did then. Words, though, spoken words are different. You think back to those times someone said something truly awful to you, and you can hear it in your head, can't you? Just like you did the first time. If you're not careful, and most people aren't, your mind can't even make the memory worse. Those voices from the past can sound even crueler. You can put words in those memories' mouths to make them say even worse things than were said. So the memory matches the pain you felt every time. For our line of work, it's a beautiful mechanism. Truth be told, though, Balloon says, we don't mind getting dirty either, when the job demands it. Do you understand? Stretch says. Perfectly, Sal says. So we're done here, Stretch says. She turns to go. She's not even sure how to get out of the building in the direction she's headed, but it doesn't matter. She can't look at either of them. Be seeing you, she hears Stretch say. 
It takes even Grace a few weeks to heal. She is not happy about it. Angry, in fact. More angry than Sal's seen her, even when she's in danger, even when she's fighting someone trying to kill her. What is with her? Sal wonders. They're reconvening for the first time as a full team since Oklahoma. The orb has been mercifully quiet. Manchu is out of the hospital at last, though he's on crutches. Grace had to carry him down the long spiraling stairs into the library. He's insisting now on standing, though he's still a little wobbly. How are we all? Manchu says. They talk about Tanner City, about their fears when they were separated, about how relieved they were to see each other again. Asante asks if they all got the pastries she made them. They did. I'm so glad you're all right, Manchu says to the rest of them. Thanks, Sal says, but I'm not sure I'm all right. Well, tell us about it, Asante says. I don't know if I should. Our lives depend on being able to talk to each other, Asante says. Sal hasn't talked about balloon and stretch to anyone. She decides she can't keep it in any longer. She tells her teammates everything. They are the only people she feels she can trust. She's expecting them to be outraged. She's expecting a gasp here and, oh God, there. Something to let her know that they're as repulsed as she is. But it doesn't happen. Sal finishes and there's nothing but a long, uncomfortable pause. Huh, Sal says. I guess I was expecting you to be more surprised. Sal, Manchu says. So when you just said that we need to be able to tell each other anything, you meant I should always tell you everything. Sal says, and in return, you just keep letting me figure out things you already know on my own. That's not what I meant, Asante says. Well, it sure feels like it, Sal says. She looks at each of them in turn, Grace, Manchu, Asante, Liam. I understood that Team Two was kind of like the society's State Department, Sal says. When were you going to tell me that it was the CIA, too? Manchu and Asante look at each other as if Sal stumbled into a conversation they've been having with each other for years but neither of them says anything. Frankly, Grace says, I'm a little surprised that you thought we didn't have one. You've seen what we do. You've seen how dangerous it gets. And team two isn't a hit squad, Liam says. Most of what they do is, well, pretty boring, to be honest. That's phone calls and meetings and paperwork. You think anyone at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration needed to be coerced into anything? They just need emails, phone calls, lots of them. But that's it, and no one is hurt. They're kept in the dark, sure, but you're police. You of all people should know that most people don't want to know what we deal with. They don't want to know that anything we see on our jobs even happens. So we just need to make sure we do the due diligence and then get on with our work. How many people has Team 2 killed? Sal says. Just because they know something they shouldn't and are unwilling to be quiet about it. The silence after Sal's question is way too long for her. None, Liam says. That I'm aware of. You know what, Sal says. Right now, that is not nearly good enough. She stands up. Where are you going, Manchu says. Home, away from this place. Leah moves to intercept her. Manchu stops him with a glance. They all watch as Sal takes the stairs back to the surface two at a time. That night, Sal gets a text from Liam. Can I come in? It reads, I'm outside. She lets him in. The visit starts off all right. He gives her a long hug. He commiserates about how crappy the job can be sometimes. He tells her he's there for her. He thinks Sal's let it go. She hasn't. 
You know those guys on Team 2 off someone, Sal says. Sal sees Liam wince a little. I don't know that for sure, he says. There's nothing in the official records that says so. I checked before I came over here. He was expecting it to be comforting, she thinks, and suddenly knows it's the opposite. Of course there isn't an official record of it, Sal says. It is in no one's interest that it ever gets recorded, which means people could just be dropping off the face of the earth thanks to them. Whenever they think it's good for the society. Killing innocent people would never be good for the society, Liam says. Then why does the society keep two people like that around, Sal says. Her voice is rising. Because they're good at their jobs. Liam's voice is rising too. Yeah, they're fucking great at them, Sal says. Just as long as they don't leave a trail of blood and no one ever asks how they do what they do. Sal feels at once like she's standing on the edge of a cliff. She was standing on it before in Oklahoma. She was standing on it again all through the inquest. And she was standing on it in the black archives. She decided not to jump off it then, but now, in her apartment, she decides to jump. You know what repulses me so much about this, Sal says. It's not that the society condones what it does, and God knows it's not that the church does. The church can condone whatever the hell it wants. It's that you do. You and Grace and Asante and Manchu. God, Manchu of all people, after what he grew up with. But you too. You've all let this job turn you into monsters. Sal knows she said too much now. She sees anger flash across Liam's face. He lets it stay there, lighting him up. She braces herself. He's gonna hit her where it hurts. And you're not, Liam says. Who are you now, Serpico? Nice reference, Sal says. Thanks for speaking my language. Get on out of that, he says. You're just as complicit as the rest of us. I don't know whether you've been willfully ignorant or just stupid. You know, like every cop who thinks he's one of the good cops, everything's fine. But you didn't have to play along. You didn't have to sign up. You didn't have to tell us everything in the field. You didn't have to say everything you said at the inquest. If you wanted to protect that little family in Tanner City, you could have, but you didn't. And you got your commendation for it. Team two does what it does, but you pointed them in the right direction. Live with that. I swear, Sal says. The day my brother either dies or wakes up, I'm out of here. She knows there's more keeping her here than that, but it feels good to lay it on the table, just to hear what he says. Good, Liam says. Truth be told, I don't think you're cut out for it anyway. What the hell, she thinks. Let's go for broke. If we're gonna get to the bottom of something, let's really hit bottom. And when I'm out, I'm telling the world what's going on here. Great, Liam says. I hope you do. He's as angry as she's ever seen him, but she knows him well enough to see the look of surprise on his face. He said what he said because he's trying to be nasty. She knows that. They both are. But the last thing he's just said is different. She can tell. A part of him actually does hope for that, does want it. To pry the lid off the whole thing and let all the worms out, to let everything out into the light. They both want it, the same thing. For a second, they stare at each other, glaring. Then his face softens and he reaches for her. Don't even think about it she says. He lets his arm drop, conciliatory, trying to patch things up a little. Are you all right? I will be, Sal says, just not now. Call if you need me, he says. I don't, she says. I suppose I deserve that, he says. Good night, Sal. He turns and walks out. She locks the door behind him and looks out the window at the sky over Rome. It looks smaller than ever. 
You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith. And additional editing by Corey Barton and Brooks Ewald. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.